A continent to love, a people changing the world. You're listening to the Voice of Africa podcast. We unearth compelling stories of trailblazers across disciplines of African descent. Learn from their strategies, challenges, and successes as you build your own vision-driven future. In this podcast, we discuss the World Bank's perspective on the pandemic and any future pandemic for that matter, and how Africa has responded to the drastic change. Let's get right into it. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Voice of Africa's podcast. Today, we are pleased to have Ms. Anne Kabagambi join us. Ms. Anne Kabagambi is an executive director serving at the World Bank Board. As one of the 25 executive members of the World Bank, Ms. Kabagambi carries out fiduciary functions and also represents a group of 22 African countries. These countries stretch out from West Africa to Eastern Africa, the Horn of Africa, and Southern Africa. In addition, Ms. Kabagambi also serves on the Budget Committee, the Development Effectiveness Committee, the Pension Administration Committee, and is the co-chair of the Boards of Gender Working Group. Ms. Kamagambe is a national of Uganda. Before joining the World Bank, she served as Chief of Staff at the African Development Bank for 10 years. Ms. Kamagambe, we're pleased to have you here. Thank you. Can you please tell us briefly about your background? Well, thank you very much for, for that kind introduction. I will start by where you left off, that I am Ugandan. And to add that, while I was born and spent my formative years in Uganda, I actually consider myself an African by identity, by my values, by my culture, by my experience. So I wanted to just slightly reintroduce myself as an African uh, with also um, who is also a global citizen by my work and my experience. And and so I, I, I like to consider the, the introduction of being from one country as something that we can stretch because as I probably have mentioned, I, I spent 15 years in West Africa, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, Abidjan, for example. I, I worked in North Africa for 11 years, in Tunis, Tunisia. And of course now I live here in Washington, D.C. So yes, uh, I was born in Uganda, the southwest part of Uganda to be exact, right next to the borders of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. And I spent my secondary school education in Uganda. And then I moved to the United States for higher education. Uh, And so you can understand why I insist on being first an African, second a global citizen, and then a Ugandan all of which I'm proud um, to be and associate with. Um, With respect to my education, I I spent my undergraduate years in California at the University of California, San Diego, UCSD, 
the UC system. And, and le then later I moved to do a master's degree at uh, Columbia University in New York City. And halfway through my career, I, I, I undertook another set of studies and acquired a second master's degree at George Washington University right here in Washington, D.C. I believe you referred to my years of service, uh, which has mainly been in international development and finance space, and a lot of service in the management at the African Development Bank, and now at the World Bank on the executive board side. So I believe that would cover uh, my background for for your esteemed audience. So I, I will pass it back to you. Okay, thank you. So essentially you've been doing development for quite some time and it just seemed to be a natural calling to you. It would appear so. The World Bank, like other organizations, must be responding to the global COVID-19 pandemic. Can you briefly tell us what the bank has done to help African countries? So I'm very pleased that uh, you, you are touching this very important aspect of what we are living with right now. And maybe before I, I answer the question of what the World Bank is doing, let me just lightly touch on what's going on on the African continent. The impact of this crisis, of course, cannot be underestimated and, and it's reflected in many aspects, but for Sub-Saharan Africa, it's basically going to show the first recession in 25 years. And the growth that we are estimating at the World Bank is that our economies are going to go down almost to negative 5.1%, if you can imagine that. Wow. Of course, this is going to be increased by our lack of medical supplies, the shortage of tourism through the lack of these travel facilities, the remittances that have been going to most of our countries have been cut down, and of course, there is a sharp drop in uh, commodity prices for which a lot of our countries depend. So the, the picture from the, that side would not look very positive, but there is slight good story to tell about the African continent. Because at the beginning of the pandemic, the narrative was that the African continent was going to almost have these apocalyptic scenarios uh, back then in March and April. And what has happened as, uh, as, as the months have gone by is that, in fact, the story 
looks more positive than we had expected. And I wanted to just mention just one of the reasons I believe is because most of the African governments uh, were quick to follow the scientific guidelines and to put in place aspects that would protect their populations. So let me just give you an example uh, that, that I think illustrates the, the the speed and the policymakers decisions that have brought some positive uh, results of course the numbers are going up but if you look at the population of the african continent which is uh, approximately 1.5 billion people and as mid-July, the reported uh, cases of uh, the pandemic are around 540,000. Wow. And confirmed deaths are about 12,000, almost 13,000. However, if you compare it to Latin America, where the population is roughly half of that of the African continent. We already have cases which are as high as 2.9 million. And of course, their deaths are almost uh, uh, 130,000. So my point being that uh, before we get to what the World Bank has done, the African countries have done uh, what I consider to be a really commendable case and uh, uh, actions to cut down cases, to move on preparedness, on responses, and uh, on, on recovery. And so that was my first point, and, and on this I would really like to choose to commend the the actions by by government, by citizens, by private sector uh, on the continent. And of course, now, if you allow me, I'll move on what we at the World Bank uh, did to help in, in this positive narrative that, uh, that, I, that I have given. So I'll continue by, uh, I think, informing you, and, uh, and I think maybe most of your audiences would, would know that the World Bank mission is to, uh, we have two basic missions, to reduce poverty figures all over the world and to increase the shared prosperity of the wealth that that uh, we have uh, in this aspect when it came to the fact that we had this pandemic that uh, visited us this year the world bank moved rapidly to adjust the programs that i just explained uh, and focused on helping countries on addressing the COVID pandemic and we did that in three ways. 
the first one was to quickly save lives. And therefore, we provided a lot of resources. Of course, money can never be enough, but we tried to provide as much assistance to countries as we could. So just to give you an idea in terms of figures on this saving lives and providing uh, money for health, between March and today, uh, the World Bank has disbursed $6.3 billion for emergency health support. And this has been to 108 countries. As I mentioned, we, 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 we are a global bank, so we help uh, all countries. And the reason this 108 is important um, is it's a milestone because it actually has helped and covered 70% of the world's population. Now, with respect to the countries I represent and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, we have 33 countries that have uh, enjoyed these, these resources and basically they go to the health ministry and help in the local programs that each country has. So that was the first part of, of what we were dealing with around March, April and towards May. Uh, trying to contain further the spread of the virus and um, uh, saving lives in almost all ends of of, uh, of 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 the continent and the world. So now the World Bank has started working to support economic recovery of most of our countries um, in terms of um, saving livelihood. So livelihood meaning those people that um, have been affected by the lockdown uh, and how can we provide them with, 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 uh, with resources, how can we preserve their jobs, how can we ensure that we can sustain business um, and and also hopefully create jobs. So these are the the interventions that we are right now involved in, and and hopefully we will have enough uh, uh, response from this second part of of of, of saving livelihood uh, and uh, protecting the the poor and the vulnerable that we will get in the last stage, which is, which is uh, recovery, resilience, and the idea of building back better. Um, I, I, I think that I should mention as a final part of what the World Bank has been doing, that on the African continent, we have some countries that um, I, I, in conflict or have some fragility that uh, have been affected even more. So on those ones, we put a lot of effort to provide some, some money and 
right now we provided to the African countries that we call fragile and conflict states uh, $1 billion uh, to help them with their uh, health aspects. Um, of course, the World Bank also has another part that provides resources to the private sector. It's called IFC. And I will mm -hmm. end uh, by saying that for the private sector, in the last uh, five months, we've also tried to focus some money to African banks or other companies that can give uh, and support the small and medium uh, companies. And, and this is also another big chunk we've, we've been able to, to disperse about $3.5 billion. Now, I know that uh, for the audience, these figures really won't mean much when, when we talked about we talk about billions. But maybe the only one thing I would like to leave behind to close uh, this, uh, your question, is mm -hmm. an institution like the World Bank responded in March by committing that in the next 15 months, and of course we did not know how the pandemic was going to uh, manifest itself, and we still don't know. But what we did back in March was commit that in the next 15 months, which ends in June next year, 2021, mm -hmm. we will work very hard to put to bear and to put to the uh, benefits of countries $160 billion in addressing wow. the pandemic. So I'll leave it at that. You are still listening to the Voice of Africa podcast. Unveiling a continent to love, a people changing the world. In the rest of the interview, Ms. Kabagambi shares her thoughts on Africa's response to the COVID-19 virus. Couldn't one suggest that since Africa's infrastructure or lack thereof played a huge role in the pandemic? Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, I, I was. Let me illustrate my 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 statement by giving you uh, an example. When I uh, when the pandemic was just beginning which was um, around February, I traveled to five of my uh, constituency countries in Africa. This was mm -hmm. the last week of, the last two weeks of February and the first week of March. When I arrived in Marawi, the team that met me at the airport was wearing masks. That's in February. Mm -hmm. When I went to Zimba uh, Zambia first, we 
where uh, Ashtuwasha hunted the airport. In Zimbabwe, there were health records and interviews by a health worker. By the time I got to Nairobi, Kenya, they were taking temperatures, they were making us feeding forms, and the first week of March, when I arrived in uh, Entebbe, Uganda, everybody at the airport, at the air, were wearing masks. And of course, temperatures were being taken. Now I'm talking about uh, the time that the pandemic had just started. The reason mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm illustrating this is that I will probably not want to tell you my experience when I got back home here in Washington, D.C. at Dallas Airport. But you probably know that there was nothing like what I experienced in the five countries that I've just explained to you. So my point being mm -hmm. that the African countries move with speed and diligence and followed the scientific guidelines way back before other countries, uh, and dare I say, most developed countries put these protocols in place. That's much clearer now. Thank you. So what, in your view, could the World Bank or the world be doing better to respond to the COVID-19 as well as any other future pandemic? So there the are very many areas that I have to say have been funded to better. However, my sense is that as we continue to struggle through the current pandemic, we have to quickly think how future pandemics would look like and how we would respond to them. So I, I, I just want to remind your audience that in the last 20 years, we haven't even gone to 20 years. We have had five previous pandemics. We had SARS in 202. We had H1N1 in 2009, we had Mars 2012, we had, of course, for us in Africa, Ebola in uh, 2014, and uh, COVID this year. So this is six pandemics in 18 years. And of course, it is true that the previous pandemics have not affected us so much, but maybe we were just lucky. So as we move into the future and look at the experience of what we've gone through, in my opinion, we want to make sure that we are prepared so that there is no closing of the entire global economy. I think that should be our objective.
Mm-hmm. And how are we going to do that? I think the first thing is really to see how we can collaborate and coordinate future pandemics in a seamless manner without responding to what is coming but being ready for another one. What is for sure is that there's going to be another pandemic. The question is, how are we going to respond to it? So in my my callings for both the countries, the nations that have really been responding to this, not as a global problem, but as a national problem, which is that problem number one, because the moment you have a, a nation-state approach, we are all doomed because the virus doesn't have any borders. It travels as quickly as the passengers are on, on airplanes. So my, my hope and my call is that we, we are able to prepare now for the next pandemic. And the best way I believe we might be able to do that is to see if we can uh, set up a, a global, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say a global fund or a global mm-hmm. group that is going to be working to get um, several things in place. They, they have to be able to create early warning signs so we know. They have to to plan and mobilize the, the players and the key players are international organizations, the private sector, which has been very quiet, citizens like you and I, uh, we must be able to find ways of, of helping out on a global health infrastructure, not just for each country. And, and we must be able to get all the intelligence and innovation and science to create things like what we are doing today with vaccines, but do it as, as a, a global family instead of each country on its own. So for me, while I believe that we are moving towards solving this particular pandemic, we must be able to create a new thinking on how we shall handle the future pandemics so that we do not once again have to have lockdowns and uh, cross the global economy. I I think that I would like to call on um, young people like you and, and, um, and others in the audience to start thinking on what it would take and, and of course, what kind of uh, um, input we also could uh, provide from the African continent that would make the world uh, have like uh, an insurance against yet another pandemic. Yes, you just read my mind, Ms. Ms. Kabagambi. Essentially, what we're talking about is more so of a people problem. It's not just a, a policy problem. And I think that as a people, 
we have to look for the betterment of ourselves. We do need to brainstorm and think deeply about how we're going to handle the next pandemic. Exactly. Um, so as someone who has been in development and financial field for more than 30 years, what advice do you have for young Africans like myself and others who may be interested in, in the field? That's a really good question, and um, it's it's very close to my heart because I, I I strongly feel that this is an area that we don't have now young people uh, engaged in 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 these global issues, um, and so I would like to first start by uh, by by hoping that. Uh, there would be enough young men, but especially at the core of it, young women that can join in um, this debate on how we should shape our world, both in the development field and any other field. But as you said, we we can put our efforts either locally, nationally, or globally. So I want to invite your audience to to look into contributing uh, at a larger scale. And um, I was um, listening to a conversation on... Um, I, I believe it was Saturday, uh, Nelson Mandela's birthday uh, was Saturday, and there was a conversation um, on 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 his achievements, and uh, and there was a debate, and 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 somebody reminded young people, and this is my first ask, that Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in the service of his nation and his people and that every year on July 18th we are all called to just provide 67 minutes they are not asking for 67 years towards the service of either your community or your nation or on an international level 67 minutes so first I want to just challenge the young people in your audience to remember uh, to provide service when they can uh, to, to their communities. And if they can, they should remember the 67 minutes. Now, how then, if you are able to provide 67 minutes, uh, continue to strive to be a better person in service of, of yourself and your community. The first uh, aspect that um, I would say to respond to your question would be that um, for the young people listening to me, there is no substitute for hard work. 
it does not even require repeating that there are no shortcuts you have to put in the hard work. And that's why I started with the 67 minutes of service. Uh, hard work and service would be my first um, advice. The second one, which I have seen uh, as part of really being in uh, in the in the global sector or national sector or being a policymaker or for that matter anything else that you wish to do is to determine on what kind of solid education you want to aspire to. And this will depend on on various aspects, what's available, what you're interested in, your abilities. But again, my own personal experience has been that uh, there's really no substitute for a good education. I, I believe I told you in my introduction that midway in my career, I decided to go back to school. So I would advocate for education. And there's a whole range of education, whether it is um, university or tertiary education or having some skills, but but acquiring education. And then I, I think the final one is because of the environment that uh, we live in as 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 African people, which has been really well illustrated by these recent demonstrations on Black Lives Matter, there's always going to be obstacles. And my advice and, and almost request is that you develop a such a level of resilience that does not stop you from doing what you've chosen to do. Um, and, 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 and resilience comes in, in, in many ways, but I think at the, at the end and, the, and the, the gist of resilience would be do not give up on what you've decided you want to do. And I, I want to end probably with um, my personal favorite soft skills, which is even if you have your incredible education and you are really hardworking and you are able to develop a certain level of resilience that does not stop you from getting what you want to do, I don't believe that you would be very successful if you did not have integrity and empathy. Those are personal qualities that you will find almost uh, cut across any area of work that you're going to be involved in. So 
that's what I would say to any young woman and any young man, but especially I want to give a shout out for the women because uh, from my experience, they will have to work twice as hard as my generation did unless we are able to move forward to make sure that the generations to come will have equal access to everything, notwithstanding which gender you are. So I'll stop it here. Well, thank you. So to any of the youth listening, and remember that hard work and education are essential factors that we have to take in order to make a difference, as Ms. Kavagambi so eloquently said. Thank you for those tips, Ms. Kavagambi. And one last question. How can the Voice of Africa support your cause? Well, first of all, you are, you are doing that by uh, reaching out to people in our community and speaking to us. So I want to thank you for doing that. Second, it is, it is uh, important that in this world that is now completely uh, based on, on social media and, how, and communication and how messages go around, you are able to reach out to not just the, the, the local communities, but to as big an audience as possible. And so uh, I would probably uh, hope that you would speak to many more of my African colleagues uh, as possible so that these ideas uh, are, are disseminated to a much larger community, hopefully both here and on the continent. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to sit with us and discuss about being of service to our people. And I know running 22 countries is no walk in the park. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, it's, it's a total pleasure for me to talk to you and uh, good luck uh, thank you thank you so much bye hey there we hope you enjoyed this interview if you did make sure to subscribe to our channel and if you already have share this interview with anyone who might be inspired by it also you can send us a review on how to serve you best join us in our next podcast where we discuss the Unloga Junction album as well as the development of the music industry and colorism in Africa with singer, rapper, songwriter, Stoneboy. <laughs>